We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Second Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. This is what Paul and Silas and Timothy continue to write. They said, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They're not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with them so that he may be ashamed. Yet, don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself Give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is God's word. Father, we pray that you would help us to see, to hear, to understand, and to be transformed by your word to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in uh, 2011, a group of people called the Reasonableists gathered in a park in Indiana to commemorate and spend together what they thought was the very last night of the world. The god of the world, Zorp, a 30-foot-tall lizard with a volcano for a mouth was going to come that night and destroy everything. And so they were there to celebrate and to play their flutes to King Zort. Yes, I'm talking about an episode from Parks and Recreation from 2011. But in 2011, in the real world, there was also a man who... Harold Camping, who ran a radio station called Family Radio, who told everybody that the end of the world was coming as well. And what he commanded them to do was to actually leave their churches because the churches didn't know the truth. He he called them to spend their money because you're not going to need it anyway on billboards to tell the whole world that the world was coming to an end. Donate your money to us and we'll get the billboards up for you. And so he set a date, May 21st, 2011, and May 22nd came and nothing happened. So then he said, well, that was when the spiritual end of the world came, but the full destruction is coming in October, and the date in October came and went. 
and we were all still here. To his credit, he came back and said I was wrong. I was a fool. And I need to repent from that. But what happened was lots of people started giving away what they had because they felt we're not going to need it tomorrow. And in that episode of Parks and Rec, the same thing was taking place. There were no doubt mocking what was going on in the real world at the time because they would get there and they would say, oh, there's a fee for the park. And they'd go, that's all right. I'm going to write you a check. Cash it tomorrow, right? And then uh, a character would come to sell them the flutes that they needed for their thing. And it was like $80 a flute. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll write you a check. Cash it tomorrow. And they're all snickering amongst each other like, the world's not going to be here tomorrow. And so it was like, just whatever, throw everything away. It doesn't matter because it's all going to burn up. And then the next day came and reality came. In a very similar way, Paul is hearing news of people in Thessalonica who have heard Jesus has either already come or he's going to be back very soon. And what they decide to do with that is to go, we don't need to do anything. We don't need to work because none of this matters. There is an idea, especially in the Greco-Roman world at the time, called Gnosticism, which is to say everything material, everything of the body, everything like you can touch and smell and see, it's bad. And you can disconnect from that because it's all going away anyway. But there's a spiritual world that is separate from that, and that's all good. And that had crept into this message of the gospel of Jesus. It crept into the church. And this idea was we don't need to work, we don't need to do anything because Jesus is coming soon. How many of us have heard anything even close to that as we've been in the church? Yeah, being honest with ourselves, right? And it's almost as ridiculous as sitting there in a park spending all this money waiting for King Zorg or Zorp or whatever his name was to come because... Paul's furious about this. He writes this letter to say, this is not what we told you. This was not the message of the kingdom of God, of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is coming to restore the world and to establish heaven on earth. What you do in this life and what you do here and now, especially believing this good news really matters. It seems like Paul's writing this letter, Jesus is coming back, have hope. You've been saved. And then all of a sudden, it seems like he makes this hard right turn of like, oh, by the way, do your jobs. Don't let someone eat food if they haven't worked for it. It seems like, where did that come from, right? Out of nowhere. But what we're seeing is that God actually cares very much about his physical, real world that he created with his words and about these physical, real bodies that he formed with his own hands and breathed his own breath into. And that if he's really at work bringing restoration to it and Jesus is to be king over all of creation, then maybe it's something we should be concerned with too here and now. And I know it's Sunday and some of you got to go back to work tomorrow and you're like, why are we talking about work? Like, come on, man. Let me enjoy my weekend, right? Because we have in our culture, we've established this idea of the weekend warrior. Like you work hard five days and then you're just working for the weekend. What's that one song? Everybody's working for the weekend. Who is it? I'm looking at you, Tim, because you should know. I don't know. But that's, that's, that's like this 
culture we've created in America and in the Western world that like, you just work to pay your bills. You work to get more stuff so that when those two days come, you can enjoy it. But what I think we're gonna see as we explore the story of the world and in that the story of work is work existed at the very beginning of all things. We have in our minds, I think a lot of times, even subconsciously, this idea that like Eden, this garden God created at the beginning of the world was this beautiful paradise where they just lounged around feeding each other grapes all the time. And then sin entered the world and all of a sudden it was like, now you gotta work through thorns and thistles. Oh man, now I gotta go clocking at my job. But the reality is work existed at the very beginning before rebellion and brokenness and sin entered. Before we get into all that, I just want to point out two quick things. One, Paul ends this letter with a, a benediction, sending them off, but he interjects it with verse 17. I, Paul, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. What would have happened in that time is getting a sheet of papyrus, which is like maybe the size of my hand right here, would be super expensive. And so what you would do is you would get a scribe who was trained in being able to write really neat and really small in order to make the most out of that sheet of papyrus. Someone who's well-trained and well-educated, this is their job. And then Paul would, at the end of it, go, but I want them to know this is really from me. I'm dictating the words and you're writing it down, but this is from me. And so he would take over at the end and he wasn't trained in writing so small. And so in his big letters, he would sign his name. And he points this out at the end to go, listen, you've, if you remember, if you've been with us as we've been going through this letter, they've been told by other people, hey, Paul sent a letter and he's saying this. And this is where these lies were coming in. This, this Jesus has already come or you don't have to worry about anything because he's coming soon. Like, don't worry about that. And he's going, no, 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 this is really from me, Okay. So that's one. And the next thing is, I want to look at what seems to be a contradiction in here. Because if you, again, have been around a church for any length of time, you may have, hopefully you've heard, God's heart for the poor, God's heart for those who do not have, and this call to provide for those who are struggling, to care for, to lift up one another's burdens. And now we have in this letter, hold on, if someone doesn't work, they don't eat. And what do we do with that? So let's turn to another letter Paul wrote. We have it up here on the screen. So in Galatians chapter 6, Paul's saying a very similar thing. Paul repeats himself a lot in a lot of his letters. It seemed like he had this recurring themes that he would keep coming back to. In Galatians 6, starting in verse 2, he said, Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Right? That sounds, sounds right. Uh, but it doesn't sound like hey, if someone's not working, they don't eat. So, for if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he could take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Hold on. Can we go back to that real quick? Sorry. I didn't say hold on fast enough. Uh, Verse two, carry one another's burdens. Verse five, each person will have to carry his own load. Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Okay, now we can continue. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. That's another one. Paul is writing Thessalonians. Hey, 
Like we were an example to you. Like we didn't ask for anyone's food. We didn't eat free of charge. We worked. And then now you're like, wait a second, but I want you to share what you have with someone who teaches you. Again, seems contradictory, right? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. Keep going. We find this in verse 13, I believe it is, in our 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, here's, here's where it all comes together. Let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So let's clear up some inconsistencies. Let's try to hold these things together. Should people uh, provide for those who are teaching them? Like, let's just be real right now, okay? We're a family. We could be real. I get a salary from Missio, and largely that comes from you guys giving your tithe. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Should that happen? Uh, like, shouldn't I be doing that for free out of the love of the word and you guys and the Lord and then find some other job? Because Paul made tents, you know? And I, and I want to say, I'm willing to do that, but I'm so grateful I don't have to because of your guys' generosity, I am freed up more to be able to visit the sick, to be able to comfort those, to be able to counsel with people throughout the week to be able to figure out Zoom and technology and all that weird stuff, to be able to put together trainings and resources for our missional community leaders. And so thank you. That is a gift to me and my family, and that is a gift, hopefully, to the body. And what that shows is that is the generosity of a family coming together. Is that necessary? No. No, it's not. Full, full disclosure, that's a scary thing for me to say right now but it's not. And so you get this picture in Thessalonians that Paul and them, and they were only there for three weeks, but they didn't take anything from anybody without working for it. But he says, it's not that we didn't have the right to support, right? That was in verse nine. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make an example. And we see that in our other elder and pastor, Anthony, who's working a full-time job teaching and doesn't take a dime from Missio and still serves the church. Let that be an example. I, I do that with Cultivate, where I'm working for Cultivate, and I don't take a dime from Cultivate, right? And so he's saying, we did this as an example, but in that letter, he goes, it's right for you to support those who are laboring in the word. So hopefully we're, we're clearing up a little bit of what seemed like an inconsistency there. The next one is, he's going, carry one another's burdens, but each one should carry their own load. What? And what he's saying by that, I believe, is not like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. What he's saying is, in a real community, what should be taking place is every single person is working to contribute to one another. When every person is wanting to contribute to the whole, everybody should be provided for. Because the one person who maybe is not able to contribute as much, but does what they can, can still be a blessing, can still have the dignity of being made in the image of God to work as a human, but also will be provided for by a loving community who says, hey, don't worry, I know you can't do any more than that, but we've got you. 
right? And so you, you tie that up with the last verse we read in verse 10 of Galatians, which is everybody working together for the good of all. This is what we're called to. And I think this will all start to make a little more sense again as we start looking at the story of work. So turn with me to the very first page in your Bible. Sorry, not your table of contents. Not the page that says dedicated to or whatever. But I mean like page one of chapter one in the Bible, Genesis one. What I think we're gonna see is work at the very beginning did not start even with humans. Who was the first worker in the Bible? Yeah, you can say it if you want, like be confident, just say it. God, yeah, some of you are guessing. You're like, I think this is where he's going. I never thought this before, but I'm just gonna say it because this is what he's trying to get out of us. Good job, You, you read me. Okay, in the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. This is a, a word, tohu, vavohu, which translated, uh, one, one commentator translated as wild and waste. I really like that. Wild and waste. It's, it's this picture of kind of disorder. So, Earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, there's darkness. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning one day. Suddenly he's bringing order to where there was chaos. If we continue, then God said, let there be an expanse between the water separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. Don't worry, we're not going to go into like a science lesson on what this all looked like. That's not the point of this book. The point is like, there's someone at work here, okay? And it was so, and God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the water he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation. What's working now? The earth itself, it's producing something, right? Let it produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so the earth produced vegetation. This goes on and on and on. Let's skip ahead. Let's go to chapter two. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his, his what? His work. First time that word's used. First person it is used for is God himself. He completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. It wasn't a weekend warrior. He actually worked six days took a break on the seventh. Interesting. From all his work that he had done, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Three times right there. Is work bad? God is doing good work here. And I wanna, there's, 
three words I just want to put up here for us. I know I don't need to, but I have this pen and it's fun. And I want us to visualize this because at the very beginning, I'm going to use my mask as a placeholder there. The very beginning, work existed and it was not something evil and wicked. It existed all the way back here at the very beginning of the story at creation. That this happening right here was done through the work of God. And what did that work look like? Clear this. God was creating order when there was chaos. God was creating beauty when there was darkness. And God created this earth where he placed creatures to enjoy it. And he, he created vegetation to grow. He called the earth to work to produce vegetation for the creatures to eat it, to partake of it. And so what he was also creating was benefit for others. Does your work do this? Does it look like this? Are you creating some kind of order where there maybe was chaos? Are you creating something of beauty, of worth, of value, just intrinsic value because it's beautiful? Think about all the different plants and the colors and the different types of animals that God creates and the way he paints the colors in the sky. Your work can just be to produce something beautiful. But it also was creating benefit for others. It wasn't just for God. Did God need a garden to go and rest in? No. And he could have created that and then just hung out there by himself, but he allowed for that to be a place that was providing for his creatures. Now, I want to encourage us to challenge ourselves to look into these three things for our actual jobs, for the work we do. If you're not employed somewhere, you still have a role, a vocation, a calling, something you are at work doing. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's caring for children. Maybe it is caring for uh, a parent who is elderly. Maybe it's just loving on your neighbors. I don't know. But all of us have some kind of work we're invited into because if we continue in Genesis, what we see later is that God invites others to this work he's doing. We saw it in inviting the earth to work, but chapter 2, if we skip down to verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let me actually skip this scene. Hold on. Let's go back to actually verse 4. At the second part of verse four, it says, at that time, the Lord God made the earth and heavens, but no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. Why? For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. So again, let's go back to verse eight. So God then creates this man and he gives him a task and he places him there in this garden 
And he says, I created all this earth to work, to produce vegetation, but there was no, when there was no man to actually work it, nothing happened. There was no shrubs, there was no plants yielding fruit. So then he creates a worker, a co-worker with him even. He creates man and says, I'm inviting you into partnering with the earth to work alongside it, to bring out the flourishing of it and to partner with me because this is all my creation I designed. And so God calls the very first person into work of bringing order and beauty and benefit to the other creatures. This man got to name all the animals and he got to care for them and he got to tend to the garden. It was not just for the man to enjoy, but for the benefit of the rest of creation. Now, if we see our work and we can go easily, we can go like, yeah, I see how I bring order when there's not order. I see how I'm bringing something of beauty and value and and I see how it's benefiting other people. Like, awesome, good for you. I would love to talk to you afterward and figure out how you did it. But if you struggle with seeing that, all we gotta do is continue in the story, right? If you struggle with seeing how your job is actually bringing something beautiful, or you struggle seeing how your job is creating some kind of order, sometimes it seems like it's more chaotic, or you struggle seeing how you're doing anything good for anybody else, I wanna welcome you to the club. And we see that the story continues and something goes terribly wrong with this identity given to humans as worker. Because when God invites them to that work in the garden, they rebel against it. And they go, no, 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 we, we've got this figured out. We don't need you telling us how to do this. And when they rebel against it, everything starts falling apart. Not just the relationship between their maker and them and with one another, the man and the woman, but even with the earth itself that they were called to partner with and work. It starts falling apart. And God, in part of that curse says, you will now work through thorns and thistles. And so when you go into your job, and your boss is driving you crazy, that's thorns and thistles. When you, when you go into work and you're trying to figure out, like, why isn't this spreadsheet doing what it's supposed to do? That's thorns and thistles. Welcome to the story of work. This is what we're all immersed in. So the story that Paul was telling the church in Thessalonica is, listen, the king over all of this, he has come to make it right again. It doesn't feel that way all the time. You're in the midst of chaos, but God is at work bringing order. There's a lot of ugliness and darkness going on around you in Thessalonica, but God is at work to restore beauty. It seems like everyone is out there for themselves, just trying to get what they want for themselves. They're not thinking about others, but God is working for the benefit of his creation. And now, if you believe this truth, church in Thessalonica, and if you believe this truth, Missio Dei, God has invited you now to partner with him in that work once again, the way it was meant to be at the beginning. You get to partner with him in restoring order where there's not order, bringing beauty where there's ugliness, and working for the benefit of others around you. And so when Paul comes to them and he hears this is what's happening, that some of you are being idle. He's not just saying you're being lazy. That's part of it. 
But that's not the only thing happening there. What's happening is they're going, we don't need to do this because it doesn't matter. He's going, yes, it does matter. This is God's world, his creation. He is at work in it and he wants you to partner with him. And so you are to be at work in it. And when, when he's talking about they're being idle and they're not busy, but busy bodies, which I love, I love that that's a word in the Bible. He's not saying that you're just like, you're going around just trying to eat from people for free. Well, here's what was happening in the context of Rome, okay? In the context of the Greco-Roman world, there is this act called patronage. And so what would happen is the people who are kind of like the higher tier uh, people in charge in that city, they would call upon poor people to come and do them favors. And those people would provide favors. They would do things for them. Uh, think of it as being like a personal assistant for the worst boss ever and you're just doing their laundry and bathing their dog or whatever it might be. And you're living off of, though, not a paycheck. You're living off of their occasional kindness to you. And so, hey, you come and do this favor for me, and maybe once in a while you get the scraps from my table. You come and you do this kindness for me, and I'll make sure you got a spot in the corner there to sleep on your little mat, right? And so what that looked like is we don't have to produce anything. We don't have to make anything because, you know, Jesus is coming and none of this is going to matter. Let's just get by today. And what would even happen in those times is a lot of times those people calling the poor people into that patronage, they would ask them to do some pretty nasty things, some pretty sleazy things on their behalf. And if they were entering into that work, Paul's saying, no, no, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, if you believe this good news, if you are wanting to join in the kingdom of God, that's not how you live anymore. And you don't live in such a way where you're just trying to get what you need for today, but you live in such a way where you're actually contributing to your community. And this is why he can say such harsh things as, if they're not doing that, don't associate with them remove them from your community because what they're trying to do is live in such a way where they're just taking for themselves and not contributing to the whole. That's like a cancer in the body. Remove that from your community. But as harsh as that is, still with grace and mercy and gentleness, he says, don't treat them like an enemy though. It's not the goal. It's not the point. Do this so that they would see their need for community. And they would see their need to contribute to community and you can welcome them back as a brother or sister. This is meant to be out of love, not harsh, strict judgment. But what we need is a community that is all working together. That's how we flourish, is that every person is doing their part. And my part may not be as much as you can do with your part because I'm limited by the brokenness of this world. Maybe it's because there's problems with my body that I can't work, right? Or maybe it's because there's problems with my mind. Mental illness exists. Or maybe it's because uh, just the situations I've been in and, and I've been oppressed. And so when we read texts like this, it could be really easy to go, if someone doesn't work, don't give them bread. And you see someone in need and you go, go get a job. And a lot of times that could be true. It, it can actually be more damaging to just give away to somebody who's not willing to work for it. But a lot of times there's a reality of brokenness in this world that people cannot provide for themselves. And as believers in Jesus, as people being renewed and transformed into his image, we are called to sacrifice, to come 
down. Jesus came from his throne into the dirty, broken world, and he took on flesh, and he took on penalty that we deserved. And so we're, we're called to imitate that, to move to another person, to find their need and, and to share that burden with them. So we got to hold these two things together. And we got to realize that when Paul's being harsh, he's actually speaking more to believers. He's not speaking to those who don't know the truth yet. There's someone in your community of faith saying that they love Jesus and they aren't contributing. Warn them they aren't seeing the full picture of the gospel. So I want to share one more verse from Colossians with you, 3, verse 23. And this is a, kind of a no-no from what I would normally tell you of just pulling one verse out of context. But I think this is in the context of what we've been reading from Paul, the same guy who wrote it. And he says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. And he goes on to say, you're, you realize you're working for the Lord. So when you go into your job and you're clocking in and you're going, I hate this thing and, and I don't like my boss. He's going, remember, that's not who you're working for. If we really are concerned with the discipleship of one another, of us learning how to follow Jesus in all areas of life, we probably should start talking a little bit more about the area where you spend 80% of your week, right? You're, you're there at least five days a week, maybe eight hours a day, some of you more. Shouldn't that be an area where we are learning how to live in light of what Jesus has done? And so he's going, whatever you do, at the very beginning in Genesis, the work we were talking about that was good and holy and done by God and man and the earth, it sounds like manual labor, doesn't it? it it's gardening, it's helping something grow. It's digging in the dirt. And in our culture, the information age where we value just, what do you know? How many degrees do you have? You can make more money as a consultant telling people things than you can digging dirt. It seems like those jobs don't matter as much, right? But we see the holy work done at the beginning of the story is manual labor. It's very physical, real, and tangible. So that's not to say that if you're doing something that's not manual labor, that's not holy too. But it's to remind us the kingdom of God is all of life. All of life. The only job I would say that someone in here could have that is not reflecting what it looks like to be a worker, a coworker with God is if you're in any kind of job that is taking advantage of somebody or oppressing them. Because once again, that gets back to what Paul's saying, you are not contributing to the community you're taking from. So yes, there's jobs like drug dealer or trafficking. Like obviously there's unholy work, right? If your job though is not taking advantage of or oppressing somebody in that immediate way, I challenge you to find the beauty in it. Find the ways you are creating order. Find the ways you are benefiting your neighbor. On the kids lesson that we sent this week that we uploaded, I hope you guys do it with your kids later. One of the things we start with is pick an object in a room and try to name as many workers as you can that helped get that object there in use. 
And so the chair you're sitting on, there's somebody who had to design the chair. There's somebody who had to put it together. There's somebody who had to, uh, I don't know how plastic gets made out of oil, but it does. And so whoever does that job, right? Uh, there's metal fabricators. There's someone who packages it. There's someone who ships it and delivers it. There's the cashier at the store where it was bought. There's all these different types of workers that went into you sitting your bottom on a chair right now. And as we do that, and as we list all those things, we start to thank God for it. God, thank you for the work of their hands. Thank you for the work of the people who provided lights, the electricians, the glass makers. Thank you for their work. It's reflecting you in the way that it is bringing some kind of order. It's reflecting you in the way that it serves people. That we don't have to stand this whole time, right? That we can see in here. That's holy good work. And for those of us who know the truth of this story, we enter into that with intentionality. We enter into that work and we go, this is a way that I can bless people to show what God is like. This is not just Paul talking. These are things Jesus said. So I want to share with you from John chapter 6, Jesus's words about work This is right after Jesus fed like 5,000 people out of a couple loaves of bread and a few fish and miraculously multiplied it and fed a ton of people. All right, and I want us to see the similarities in this because Paul's been talking about work and food. If if you work, you get to eat bread. And so let's let's hear Jesus talk about bread, okay? This is what he says. Uh, So he's fed all these people and then he got to get away for a little bit, but then they followed him. They chased after him. And so when they're coming after him, Jesus says this, Truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. There's another point where Jesus tells a crowd following him and and like they're asking for signs and he goes, you wicked people. You're just always asking for signs, miracles. You want me to prove myself to you. And this, Jesus is like, it's like almost like these people are even worse. Like you're not even after me for the signs. You're just here because you were hungry and now you got your belly filled. It's like the patronage thing, right? It's like, uh, hey, what can we, let's follow this guy around. He seems to have bread. Let's see if he just gives it to us. So he's going, you're following me because you ate the loaves and we're filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. In the same way that Paul wrote in Colossians 3, right? Whatever you do, whatever work you do, do it unto the Lord. Jesus is saying here, don't work for the things that will perish. Yes, you need clothes. Yes, you need to pay your bills. Yes, you need to eat. Jesus also said another time, like, focus on the kingdom and all those things will be given to you. So do your work, but do it in a way where you are honoring the Lord, where you are showing people what the kingdom's like. And then they say, what can we do to perform the works of God? That's actually a fair question. So he's talking about like work for the food that never perishes. And they go, what does that look like? And Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. This is a, I want to make one last little distinction here for us. And we'll wrap it up. You can leave that up, Patrick, because we'll read that too. But one last distinction, because we can easily, like the Gnostics, remember, material things bad, spiritual things good. That was not the gospel. We can easily take that and go, that last sentence, 
of, uh, can you go back to that one, Patrick? Sorry. This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent, and we can easily go, okay, I've said this prayer. I raised my hand during the altar call or whatever. I know in my head I've said Jesus is king. I've done the work. That's all I got to do. And we separate that from real life. But if we've been listening to Paul's letter, and if we're really listening to Jesus's words, that word believe, that word believe is connected to the same, it's the same Greek word as faith. And it does not mean just simply acknowledging in your head. What it means is putting your whole trust and your whole self into it. So this is the work of God. Believe the one he has sent. He's talking about himself, Jesus. If we really believe Jesus is the king who has come to restore all of creation, if we really believe that even though he died, he rose again to new life, filled by the spirit, if we really believe that he then sent that same spirit to empower us, then we believe we can live in such a way that the spirit is giving us power, giving us strength, giving us wisdom and giving us love to engage in the everyday stuff of life. Let's jump down again. Sorry, Patrick, we'll finish by reading this. Jesus says this, he says, the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. And he says this, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Is there another? That's the last one, okay. Later on in that chapter, if you keep reading, what happens is his disciples come up to him, they go, what are you talking about? And he explains a little more, and then a bunch of his disciples leave him. He didn't just have the 12 following him all the time. He had a, a whole gang of people following him. And a bunch of them said, peace out at that moment. They bailed. This is weird. I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. You gotta eat your flesh and drink your blood. What? I just thought you were gonna feed us. I just thought you were gonna go in and kick out uh, the Caesar, take over Rome. What are you talking about? And Jesus is saying, I am the one who is bringing restoration to this world to make it right. I am the one who created this earth to work with man, to sprout vegetation, to provide what you need. I am the one who called you into that partnership. And I will bring full restoration to it one day. And those who are with me will get to live in that kingdom. They will get to be nourished and feast on me, the one who provides life. But if you walk away, if you are searching after something that this world can provide you, you'll be hungry again. You will thirst again. You'll keep going back to that thing that you think will satisfy you and you will never be satisfied. Do your work for the Lord and you will never be hungry. You will never be thirsty. Kids, does that mean you'll never have to drink a glass of water? No, that's not what we're saying, right? What it means is you will be fully satisfied and have everything you need. And you will be able to live forever with the God who created this world. He will be there with us. The end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22, doesn't paint a picture of us floating on clouds, playing harps. It tells the story of a city. 
and it looks much like the garden God created at the beginning, but now there's more people working in it. It's a city that God lives in, and he is there personally with us. And so we get to now work in such a way where we tell people about that. We point forward to it. We can bring order and beauty and benefit in all the things that we do. But we need the Spirit to help us. And so let's pray together for the Spirit's help.